Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God. His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Thursday, March 3rd, we're studying Luke chapter 12, verse 54, through chapter 13, verse 9. Jesus calls the crowds to interpret the signs of his coming rightly, ultimately through repentance and faith in him alone. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Philip Hoppe. Pastor Hoppe serves at Trinity Lutheran Church in Colby, Kansas. Pastor Hoppe, welcome back to Sharp Iron. Hey, glad to be back with you again today. As we get started today, Pastor Hoppe, let's talk a little context. We're at the end of chapter 12, beginning of 13. What should we know about where Luke has been leading us to understand this text today? Yeah, well, I think in general, we want to remember uh, today that uh, Jesus is ultimately on his way to Jerusalem, right? And in one sense, he's, uh, as far as the text is concerned, he's been on his way now for a number of uh, chapters, and he's doing a lot of teaching. Um, you know, if you have a red letter Bible, there's been a lot of red uh, in this these last few sections. Um, and, you know, I think the overall kind of immediate context, especially leading up to this, um, you know, is Jesus is really calling for a, um, you know, a, a sharp uh, dedication to God the Father, ultimately, I guess, is what I'd say. You know, he, he basically says, you know, he has this line shortly before where he says, you know, don't uh, fear the one who, you know, could just like cast you into prison, but fear the one who could cast you uh, into eternal hell. And then right after that, the next verse, he flips, though, to say, hey, but guess what? that one whom you're to fear is your loving father. And I think that it's kind of this back and forth that we see here. We see a lot of talk about God's loving care. And at the same time, we get these dire warnings that if we don't live in that care, uh, and if we don't seek to repent of our sins, well, then we can end up with some very dire consequences. And he's, you know, kind of looming in all of this is talk of judgment, right? And we often think of judgment day as that last day, and rightly, that's the way the, the scriptures speak. But I guess I would kind of argue here, too, that Jesus sort of uh, talks about his own death and resurrection and ascension as sort of part of that whole judgment idea. And so part of the thing that's kind of looming in our text is this idea of the time coming quickly, when these things are going to happen to Jesus and how are the people that are journeying with him to Jerusalem, how are they to act in this time, which you know ultimately is to repent uh, because the time is near, right? For Jesus, for the world. Uh, and we can talk at the end, you know, for us as, as well. Um, but I think that's the basic context that we kind of come into this with is, you know, a very uh, just straightforward call that Jesus needs to be, uh, or that God, I should say, the father needs to be our ultimate priority uh, and that we're on the way with Jesus to Jerusalem. What you said about the 
you know, the sharp distinction that's there sometimes, and you get these, both of these things side by side of, on the one hand, God loves you. He, you know, fear not little flock. And then on the other hand, these sharp statements of, of judgment, which I think is kind of where we ended with the previous text, reminds me of a previous guest mentioned, you know, in Luke chapter six in the Sermon on the Plain, Jesus starts there with the Beatitudes followed right by the woes. And it's almost like later in Luke's gospel, in, in several cases, you get a, a repeat of that side by side where you, you see the blessedness that belongs to God's people, but you can't take it for granted because the, the woes are right there next to it. And I, I think in, in our text today, the majority of it feels like it goes hand in hand with those woes. I, I think there's some blessedness in there as well. It's maybe a little bit more hidden in this text. But I, I think that, I mean, you see Jesus speaking very sharply and very directly in this section of Luke. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. And I think, you know, if we get a little bit of the blessedness, it's sort of uh, maybe we would say in the fe- in the uh, uh, kind of setup to the telling of the parable uh, of the fig tree. Uh, we'll get a little bit there where we understand again, uh, even why it's so terrible that the people are not repenting. You know, I think this is something we often forget, right? It's not just that there's sort of like this neutral thing thing we have with God and then we sin against him. It's that he's blessed us in all of these uh, many ways. And yet then we live lives at times that are not fruitful or, you know, our, our lives are full of uh, um, not repenting rather than repenting. And so it even heightens a sense of, right, what we should be with what we are. And that uh, indeed are those kind of woe statements, right? Uh, and uh, from there, you know, we're driven. We pray, uh, all of us listening, right, to repentance and faith. Is there, before we read and start with the whole text, it, I notice in verse 54, it says, Jesus says to the crowds in this case, if you go back all the way to 22, he was talking to the disciples. Peter in verse 41 speaks up. I mean, it seems that maybe there's a slight shift in the audience here from more directed to the disciples now speaking to the the wider audience of the crowds. Is that sometimes I know I personally will glance over those and not pay as close attention. Do you think there's something to the I, what it seems to be a change in audience here to broadening now to the crowds? Yeah, I think, you know, in general, it is just that a, a broadening. And I mean, I think, uh, you know, we even get words used here, you know, where he calls the crowds hypocrites. Um, and that's, a, you know, a phrase that before this, he really usually directs towards the Pharisees. Um, and I, I think there's just a sense of with the crowds traveling with him, because the time is drawing near, he doesn't want to leave any confusion as to whether the things he is saying are just for the religious leaders, whether that be the Pharisees uh, or those who are going to take their place in the vineyard, uh, the disciples, the apostles. And I think he wants everyone that's kind of there journeying along to understand that these words are, are meant for all. And so I think you know, the application for us, especially maybe us speaking of those uh, that are listening more than maybe those of us that are teaching, just in the sense that we were in that role of, you know, pastor, uh, but that, you know, these words, we never should just say, oh, okay, that's stuff Jesus would have been talking about to the leaders, but it's actually stuff for all of us to consider. Yeah, I think that's a helpful connection with that word hypocrites and how that applies then to the crowds. And also then, we are invited to listen, hear, repent, believe as well. So we are in Luke chapter 12, beginning at verse 54. Jesus also said to the crowds, When you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, a shower is coming. And so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, 
there will be scorching heat, and it happens. You hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. That takes us to the end of Luke chapter 12. That's Luke 12, verses 54 to 59. Pastor Hoppy, we'll pause there. So Jesus speaks to the crowds. He starts talking about the weather. What, what's he? Why is he talking about the weather all of a sudden? Well, he, you know, he really wants to say to the people that, you know, they can be very perceptive about certain things, right? And I guess, you know, obviously in those days, they didn't have six different weather apps on their phone. And so, uh, you know, we think today, you know, that's how we talk. You know, I always think it's interesting. Someone will say, well, it's going to rain on Tuesday. Oh, yeah. Well, that's what they said, or that's what my app said, you know. Uh, But we find out that the, you know, the ancient world, of course, um, perhaps was more perceptive than us even. I mean, there's some of this we get too, uh, but, you know, they didn't rely on someone else to tell them. They would kind of look at what was happening uh, in the weather otherwise and could kind of predict what was going to happen. Um, and in particular here, you know, the two things that are sort of mentioned are the the clouds uh, rolling in, right, which this would kind of be clouds that would, you know, probably gather kind of at the Mediter- Mediterranean Sea and then come from the west. Um, having just moved uh, back to Kansas here recently, you know, this is a phenomenon out here in Western Kansas that you clearly can see, right? The clouds rolling in from the West and uh, you can do some pretty good predicting about what's to come. Uh, it's, it's definitely something that makes sense out here. Um, and, uh, you know, then the second thing is, you know, this Southern wind blowing and they say there's going to be this heat. Um, and, you know, for them, that would have been kind of the heat blowing up uh, from the Arabian desert. Uh, and, uh, you know, but again, living where I do now, you know, I I thought since I was talking to you down in Texas, you know, we could say the same when the wind is blowing up from Texas, it's likely to get a little hotter here, you know, but, but all these things, I mean, that's just to say what, you know, kind of what they're talking about. But the real deal is he says, how can you guys be so perceptive about this? And yet when it comes to the things of God, you can be so dense, right? You don't, you don't know what's going on. You don't see what's going on. And he says, particularly of this present time, right? And the present time refers here specifically to the fact that the Messiah that has been long awaited is now upon the earth. And so the end times are now being begun. Um, you know, this is something that we always kind of have to keep in our, our minds, right? We we think of the, well, I often in Bible study, I'll say, okay, we're talking now about the, the last, last days, right? And that's often how we think about the last days is just kind of, you know, whatever, the week, the month, the year before Christ's return. But really biblically, right, ever once the Messiah comes, we're in this last time. And he basically is telling these people, you're there, this thing that all of your people have waited for forever. It's occurred and you don't get it. And he kind of says, how's that possible? And I, I think, you know, when we turn and think about our lives, I think about how many things we try to predict, right? And we think we can, right? I mean, whether it's something, you know, in world events where we say, oh, this, this nation is making this move, so they're likely to do this next. 
and we we think we're quite smart, right? Or health things, right? This has happened, so this will probably happen next. Um, and I think God would say to us too, okay, yeah, maybe you can figure out some of that stuff, but can you figure out that you are living in the last days, that the Christ is come and will soon come to judge again? And if so, if you can judge that, now are you going to live in accord with that, right? Just like, again, if it's going to rain, you might grab an umbrella, right? Or the scorching heat is going to come up. You probably don't want to put on a parka. Uh, so are you, are you living in a way that speaks that you understand the times you're living in? In terms of uh, the crowds that are gathered there, you know, I mean, the two things that Jesus mentioned, the cloud rising in the west, the south wind blowing, both of those are pretty obvious signs that just about anybody should be able to say, okay, yeah, there's clouds over in the west, rain's coming, I can feel the wind blowing from that direction, it's going to be hot. Those are pretty obvious things. For the crowds gathered then, what are the the signs, what's happening in the present time that Jesus is expecting they should be able to... read so easily, but they're not. What what are they what are they missing? Well, I, I think, you know, first and foremost, I think of, you know, uh in the scriptures when John the Baptist sends his messengers uh to Jesus to ask, you know, are you the one? And there, you know, he he responds by saying, Hey, all these things that have been long predicted to happen in the time of the Messiah. Basically, you know, people are going to be healed, right? And add to that. So all the miraculous healings and then add to that that good news is preached to the poor. And he says, you know, basically, I think that's what he's saying here. I mean, if you're following Jesus around, you're seeing these signs and wonders, which all the prophets say that these things are going to come in abundance during the time of the Messiah. Uh, they're happening and you're seeing them like day to day. And also, again, then you're hearing all the time Jesus preaching, uh, ultimately giving good news to the poor. As we mentioned, sometimes, right, giving uh, bad news to the proud first, uh, but then following that up with good news to the poor. And so, you know, he just kind of says here, you know, the, these are the things that were to come. Uh, and if, if you know, if the people knew the scriptures and understood them well, they should be able to go, yep, this is the guy, right? This is the one we've been waiting for. And yet they don't seem to largely. Right. Yeah, they don't. And and I, you pointed this out again, and I think it's it's worth repeating that when Jesus calls them hypocrites in verse 56, that ties them together with the mistake of the Pharisees. And, and the mistake of the Pharisees is not recognizing Jesus. That's that's ultimately the, the root cause of the failures. They don't get Jesus. And he has given them plenty of things to latch on to. Even in Luke's gospel, even before you get to any of the, the signs and the wonders, all the way back to Nazareth in his opening sermon where he says, this text from Isaiah, it's fulfilled in your hearing. Right. I mean, there there it is. And I suppose even even before that, you could you could say just the preaching of John itself, that his own preaching took the call to repentance and saying that the Christ is coming, that too should have been a sign. They've they've failed to see it. So that's I mean, I think, you know, when you look at the gospel of Luke as a whole, it's it's pretty easy to see those things. Now you you've mentioned, I, I think, you know, how this may apply to us. And I think we, we want to be careful here because there are some some denominations within Christianity that take this idea of looking for signs farther than Jesus says here and farther than the rest of the scriptures give us. So, I mean, what does this mean for us today to to look at the present time? You're talking about the the last, last times. How do we how do we do this today without 
going too far. Well, yeah, interestingly, I was just, you know, reading this morning, I kind of had, you know, read the things I normally read. And then there's this one resource I use online that is not from a Lutheran perspective, but it just kind of often has some interesting little tidbits in it. But, you know, when they got to this point, they're just like, well, obviously, you know, we should be able to read the signs now because the nation of Israel has been reestablished, which means the temple's coming, which means et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right. And so it's this very specific Specific and basically saying like, well, if you can't get that that's all related to the end times, uh, you know, you're doing the same thing they were doing here. Well, now, I mean, we could spend a whole episode talking about how those things are not really the prophecies that are to be fulfilled in the last times anyways, right? That those are kind of misinterpretations of other uh, biblical texts and things like that. But at the same time, we want to understand, I think, first and foremost, in general, that we're in the last times. And that again, as as I said, that that then leads to a particular outlook on life. So it's not so much about let's read the signs to try to divine the time, which of course the scripture say, says that no one knows except the Father, right? But instead, that as we look around and we see evil, uh, as we see, you know, even to take a few of the last things, as we see division upon the earth based on Christ uh, and who clings to him and who does not, all of these things are to remind us always that the end is near, right? And we don't know, again, whether that's 10 years near or 100 or 1,000 years but it is near, and we're to then live our lives uh, in accord with that understanding. And that really ties back even farther than the the division that you mentioned, but into what Jesus talks about, the wise and faithful manager, the the servant waiting for the return of the master. What What's that servant up to? Well, he's not really so much focused on the timing of it or, or trying to you know, discern the signs, I suppose. He, he knows that the master is coming, that the master will come whenever he chooses. And so what is his response? It's, it's faithfulness. That's the, I mean, then that's the, that, the way that that proper faith toward the master manifests itself in the life. And I think that, you know, tying those two things together, I, I think is helpful that, you know, as we read the times, as, as we recognize we are in the last days, Christ could return at any moment. That doesn't sort of lead us just to let our minds wander and, and do whatever, but it does propel us into faithfulness here and now serving the people God has given us to serve. Yeah, no, I think that I think that's absolutely it, and I think you're, you know, you do well with bringing us back to the the faithful and, and evil servant there because it both shows us that general posture of faithfulness and trust, right? But it also shows then how that plays out into the world, right? Are we again? Are we going to be mistreating others while we wait for the Lord to return? Well, if we really believe that He might return, that just wouldn't make any sense, right? This is kind of when you see people that maybe falsely. Uh, decide to identify a particular date that Christ is going to return and start to order their lives according to that. I mean, there's a tragedy in that because of all the things we've talked about. But the one thing that I always think is kind of interesting there is there's at least a consistency there, right? That uh, if you're going to believe that Christ is going to return and then you, you know, go out and sell your house, well, again, that may be misguided, but it's at least consistent. And I think Jesus says here, you know, all too often, um, you know, we're not really taking in what time it is uh, to deep enough into our minds and our hearts so that then we start to do things in accord with that. 
as Jesus continues, you know, he's, he says, you don't know how to interpret the present time. Then he, he keeps asking questions. He says, why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? It seems that, that it's related. He, he switches now to an image of going to with to, going with an accuser to a magistrate to a judge. Uh, what's what's the move that Jesus makes from interpreting the times to the going before the judge? Yeah, well, I think here, you know, he he goes into a little parable before the parable, if you will, right? Uh, um, you know, this isn't usually identified uh, as uh, a parable, maybe, uh, but it is it is a brief one, right? And again, I think with both the parables we have today, um, you know, we can read them a touch differently as far as who the actual people are, whether uh, one person is Jesus, the son, or whether we're talking about the father. But the, the consistent thing is, this idea now, and this is where I was talking in the beginning about Jesus tying even just right his death and resurrection and ascension to judgment day. This is kind of the thing. They're they're literally on their way to Jerusalem, right? And he, he basically says, you know, to use language we would use in our legal system is make a settlement, right? Make a settlement uh, before you actually get to the judge. Um, and again, we know that often people that that don't make settlements. I mean, there's, again, I suppose the right time not to make a settlement with anyone is if you're completely innocent, right? Uh, then you want to go to the very end and, and face the judge. Well, we should know that's not our situation, right? So we can either then feign our innocence, right? And still say, well, we, we are innocent, even though it, you know, appears that we're not, uh, either that, or we can actually just come clean with what we've done and make a settlement. Now, in the world sense, a settlement is usually just sort of a lessened punishment, right? It's it's usually just, you know, okay, you were going to get 10 years, you get five years or two years. Uh, blessedly with God, the settlement that he makes with us, right, is that Christ will bear all of our sins and be our savior, right? And we uh, will get off scot-free, right? We will not be punished for our sins. And in fact, right, we'll be given all the blessings uh, that are due to the righteous one, Jesus himself. Uh, that's what we get instead. And so the encouragement here is one of time and urgency, which I think is, you know, an overall theme of this section is, you know, we're going, the time is growing shorter and shorter. Now is the time to do this, to turn from the hypocrisy that they've learned and maybe latched onto from the Pharisees and turn instead to the Messiah who has come and receive his uh, offered gift of salvation. I think, you know, the turning from the way that the Pharisees are leading them is in view here, at least in part, particularly where it says, you know, why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? You know, pay pay attention yourselves to the signs. Do not be misled by the way the, the Pharisees are leading you. And and this image of being on the way, you know, Jesus has set his face to go to Jerusalem. We're seeing that image of a journey and traveling show up not only very literally in this section of Luke, but even figuratively in, in cases like this. So, I mean, just to, to understand this this short mini parable that Jesus tells then, so we're the ones who are being accused. Who's doing the accusing? Who's the, who's the judge? 
And then just to reiterate, what what's the way out? What's the settlement? Yeah, I mean, again, I think you know we could flip these things a little bit one way or another, but ultimately, you know, it seems that you know, kind of the um, you know the accuser. Um, I mean, again, in the Bible, often you know Satan is called the accuser, of course, the one that that's going to uh, bring us before God. But I think here also we can say to some extent, God is the accuser here, or even God in the flesh, Jesus. But the the point. I think the important point is you're being brought before the judge. And again, the ultimate judge here, I think when, when anyone else speaks, maybe I'm wrong, you can correct me on this, Pastor Apple, but it seems to me when others speak about the judge in the New Testament, they point to Christ. And when Christ speaks of the judge, he often points to the father, which of course, the two are one. It's fine, right, that, that we have that. But I guess the ultimate thing is, yeah, you're going to go before this judge. You're going to be accused. Um, and, uh, you know, if, again, you wait until that day and kind of, you know, either feign your innocence or, you know, whatever, just decide you'll go before the judge on your own standing, you're in big trouble, right? You're, uh, you're going to be uh, cast in that place where you're going to have to pay every last penny. And really here, I think this is an idiom that doesn't speak at all about, you know, yeah, you'll eventually get it paid off, right? It's much to the contrary. It's, you'll never get it paid off, right? Um, uh, you know, this penny word is, you know, kind of this uh, thin copper coin they had in the day that wasn't, uh, you know, worth much at all. And and But the overall picture is just, which we're going to continue with here, is if you don't repent, if you don't make this settlement, well, then you're going to face extreme judgment. Mm. Yeah, in, in terms of the, the judge, I do think you're right that here the Father seems to be in view as the judge. I, I believe in Matthew 25, Jesus is sitting on the throne acting as the judge. And and now my memory is, is a bit shaky, but is it in John's gospel, perhaps, where Jesus speaks of the Father handing judgment to him or, or something, something yeah, to I that effect? Yeah, I think you're right, yeah. But they, but I, I mean, again, ultimately, I think the the point remains the same here in Luke chapter thirteen that you are going right now to the judge. How will you how will you settle with him? And I think maybe to to find a slight gospel handle in this section is by keeping on this journey with Jesus. Go go where Jesus is going. See where he's going and what he's going to do for you there in Jerusalem. And when you you hang on to him, when you make that journey with him. He carries the judgment. He takes it on himself, and then you are declared innocent in him. Maybe that's a slight gospel handle in the midst of some pretty strong language from Jesus here. Yeah, no, I, I think you're exactly right. And when I said that, you know, Jesus kind of ties the judgment like all together in the last days from, you know, his time all the way to the end, there's definitely still, though, I don't want to say that it, it pulls it all together so tightly that there's not sort of time in between. And I think you're exactly right. Literally, they're going to go see how this settlement gets worked out, right? And then that settlement is going to be offered to them, right? At, at Pentecost cost and going forward, right? This settlement is going to be offered to them uh, to have their sins forgiven, to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, right? Through baptism and and through the word. Um, and there, right? Yeah. Then they can make that settlement before you get to, again, the last, last day, right? That's right. That's right. And Jesus keeps going on this journey. We're going to pick up more of that from Luke 13 on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO talking Luke 12 and 13 with Pastor Philip Hoppe. We will be right back. Please stick around.
Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Thursday, March 3rd. We are studying Luke chapter 12, verse 54 through chapter 13, verse 9 with Pastor Philip Hoppe. He serves at Trinity Lutheran Church in Colby, Kansas. Pastor Hoppe, prior to the break, we looked at the end of chapter 12. Now we pick up the text again, beginning in chapter 13, verse 1. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. That's the rest of our text for today. That takes us through Luke 13, verse 9. So Pastor Hoppy, some people now come to Jesus. They're there. They're listening to him. And they bring up a case to him that apparently was known to them, but maybe is not as familiar to us. Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. What are they What are they bringing to Jesus' attention? Yeah, and like you said, uh, I mean, in both of these cases, obviously these are things that both Jesus and the people he's talking to seem to be familiar with, right? Things that uh, had happened in fairly recent times uh, that would have, uh, you know, made their rounds, uh, you know, other people telling this story and then other people listening to it. Um, and, you know, we, we don't know exactly Exactly. I, I know the, uh, you know, maybe you have some other things too, but I know that a lot of the things I read s- suggest that, you know, kind of what was going on at this time um, is that Pontius Pilate is uh, decided that uh, the water system in Jerusalem needs upgrades uh, and he's going to try to build, uh, you know, aqueducts uh, into the city. And as he does that, though, what he decides to do is finance this with temple money. Uh, uh, and the Jews are not excited about this at all. Now, we don't know exactly how this all played out in the end or, again, to say exactly what events are being talked about here. But we do have some historical um, evidence that, you know, Pilate uh, in this time did some things uh, that were um, quite, uh, you know, nasty, I guess, for lack of a better word, um, that he would, you know, like when these Jews sort of revolted and said, you can't use, you know, God's money for that, so to speak, uh, that at least one 
one of the accounts is that, you know, he sort of sent in his soldiers kind of undercover uh, into the temple uh, and, uh, you know, killed those who had rebelled against. Is that the exact case? We don't we don't exactly know. But I guess overall, uh, it is to say that these were things where people would have sort of thought, I think, at least in general, that, you know, something this tragic, this extreme that had happened must reveal that God was punishing these people particularly for either their immediate actions or for something else in their life. Um, And so I think both of those, that's kind of the setup where they're coming to say, wait a second, Uh, you know, and and I don't, there's a little bit of a like, where did the conversation change here? You know, I almost wonder if this isn't in response to that. Why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? Mm -hmm. This is sort of how they're getting in. Okay, you're telling us we should judge for ourselves. Let's bring up a couple real life situations and let's try to judge, right, what happened here. Uh, But of course, Jesus is going to use these situations to ultimately call the people that are telling him about them to repentance. I, I think you're right to connect this text to the previous one about the judging for yourselves, what is right, and even, you know, trying to interpret the present time. Okay, Jesus, you, you want us to try to interpret the present time. You say it should be obvious. You want us to judge for ourselves what's right. Well, let's let's talk about a case. You know, here are some some people who have been killed while they've been sacrificing. And this is, I mean, I think the one that they bring up is supposed to be pretty pretty shocking. I think the, the example you, you told me was that it would be like killing Christians who are in church on Christmas or Easter, right. Right? Some, something to that effect. Here's, here's just this blatantly obvious looking thing. Let's, let's try to interpret this, Jesus. Tell us, tell us how to judge for ourselves what is right. And it, based on the way Jesus speaks to them, it, it seems that they've got in their minds, okay, here are these people who suffered in this way. They must have done something to deserve it, or somehow God is is visiting upon them his judgment. And, and I think it sounds like Jesus surprises them, uh, twists things around so that the interpretation of this sign isn't maybe what they thought it was. That, that's what seems to be going on. Yeah, I think so. And I think, you know, with this whole section, we have to be a little careful, too, because since what they're originally trying to do is sort of say uh, they're kind of, you know, being one of Job's friends here and saying, listen, the uh, the unjust, right, uh, they're the ones that suffer. And right, I've never seen uh, that, you know, someone that's righteous would suffer, right? You know, this is, we just all know this, that this is how this goes. Uh, And again, he's going to turn this around. The only thing I think we have to be a little careful is that we don't take it too far to try to say that, okay, really what Jesus is saying is there's no connection between sin and punishment, right? That's that's certainly not what he's teaching here. And I think sometimes we're tempted to that, right? We're tempted to go, well, since we can say that we can't always, you know, if somebody get sick, right? Uh, We're not going to go out as a pastor and say necessarily, oh, yes, I went back. I talked to some people. Here's your three sins that led to your sickness, right? We don't want to do that. But at the other time, we don't want to disconnect the fact that everything that is suffering, everything that is even some sort of judgment in this world is ultimately connected to sin. And I think this is exactly what Jesus 
does here, right? He he flips it on them first, which is to throw off what they think. He says, you know, do you think these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans, right? That the reason they had this fate is because they had done, you know, if the average sinner had done five sins, they had done 10. And he says, no, that's that's not it, right? But then rather than just saying, well, you know, there was no connection to sin and, and this destruction, you know, has nothing to do with sin. He says, no, actually, he says, unless you repent or to go back to that previous little mini parable, unless you make a settlement, right, this is what is going to befall you, right? This is what will come to you because you are a sinner, and as we, you know, we often say in the confession of sins, right, we say that we deserve temporal and eternal punishment, right? And I think this is exactly what Jesus is saying. Yeah, you do, right? This is, uh, we tend to think like, if we don't do anything really bad, we should have good, normal lives. And God says here through, right, God in the flesh, Jesus says here, no, uh, in fact, what you're seeing here is that ha- if I did not have mercy, all there would be was destruction continually upon sinners, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. If- yeah, no, and I, I think, I think, I mean, the, this little section of text is, is one that I go to often in, in cases like, like what you're describing, where you, you see someone suffering and they're, they're asking those questions like, why is this happening to me? And we, we need to be careful. And I, I guess maybe it, it, it depends where you find yourself. So in the, in the case of the people who are speaking to Jesus, they're on the outside looking in. They're they're bringing up to Jesus the situation that happened to others, trying to discern the times, you know, interpret them correctly. And Jesus' response to them is, you repent. You who are standing in front of me, you repent. Not Don't worry about how bad of a sinner they may be. You repent because you deserve the same. But that doesn't change the fact that if I find myself on the inside, you know, and, and I suppose in this case, it's hard to be one on the inside because they were killed. But if I'm the one who's sick, sick right. that is an opportunity for me to repent. I mean, you know, we don't we don't use this text to say, well, you're sick, so there is no connection at all. No, no, you 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 should take a time of sickness or disaster that does befall you as an opportunity to repent. If you see disaster fall someone upon someone else, repent. If disaster falls upon you, repent. I mean, I think like, regardless of where you are, it, it seems that if I'm, I'm trying to tie these together, I, I don't want to go too far, but it sounds like wherever you are, as you're trying to interpret the, these times, repentance is a really good choice. Right. No, uh, no, I think you're absolutely right that that, yeah, I mean, you know, that, that, I mean, this is, you know, right. Get back to the first of the 95 theses that Luther posted, right. The whole life of a Christian is that of repentance, right. So like you said, no matter what's going on, but particularly when we see these things that all of us recognize as bad for, you know, I won't use a very theological word there, but, but we recognize as that it's always a time to reflect and to repent before God, to humble ourselves before him um, and, you know, uh, receive again that wondrous settlement that he has made with us uh, in Christ. And uh, but, yeah, I, I think you're you're certainly right uh, in, you know, kind of how you're reading this here and that we want to repent. And I think you're also right that in our particular times and it is really hard. This is part of, you know, the whole thing of uh 
you know, listening to people, um, you know, to use kind of more theological language to know when to apply law and gospel, right? You and I know we can be with somebody that is sick and they have thought of their sins a lot, right? <laughs> and to them, you get to offer them that wondrous grace that, no, if you've repented, right, God's certainly not continuing to punish you because of your sins, right? He forgives you of those. But on the other hand, if you have someone that is proud <laughs> and they're going through sin, uh, you might have to remind them, right? Well, you know, perhaps you should think a while on your on your sins. I always think of this in, uh, I've noticed in older prayer books uh, where you see a prayer in a time of a natural natural disaster or a particular disaster like, uh, a, say, a church being destroyed. Um, you know, our modern prayers just kind of, I don't know, they're kind of weak and they kind of just say, oh, you know, this is bad. Be with us, God, right? Or something like that. But the older prayers were prayers of repentance, right? They were to say, we don't know that we've done anything, you know, particularly wrong, but if we have, right, uh, you know, or, or one thing in particular, it'd probably be better the better way to say that, that you're particularly trying to call our attention to. But if so, Lord, open our eyes to that. But if not, again, just give us that understanding that indeed this is what sinners deserve and that if we don't get it, it's the mercy of God. Right. Yeah. And, and that's, I mean, always coming back to the mercy of God. That's where we, we always have to come back to because that's the only thing that will save us from this perishing that Jesus says we would likewise have unless we repent. Just real briefly before we move past it, because I want to make sure I under, understand you're, you're talking about, I had mentioned the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. That's what the crowd brings up. Jesus adds to that in verse four, the 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. And again, and granted that we don't know precisely these historical circumstances, but in, in some of your reading, did, did I understand you right that you're connecting those two events or, or are those like to this aqueduct building perhaps, or are they separate? Yeah, no, I no, I think again, at least from you know my understanding of it is again that we don't have anything that just perfectly matches this, but that the thought is that this is sort of the ongoing thing that is happening, and perhaps sort of the thing that the people are talking about is, I mean, and, and we get two different kind of things here, right? In one case, it seems that Pilate is ordering a massacre, right, and in another, in this, you know, the Tower of Siloam falling. We we're not at least given any impression that, you know, uh, Pilate told him to go push this over on the people. It, it seemed to occur in more of a just tragedy way. And again, I think that goes back to, you know, what the conversation we were happening, because sometimes we do see an evil perpetrated by someone that it just takes in their hand to do evil. But there are a lot of those other times where it does just seem like the tower fell on someone, right? They were just going along in life and then all of a sudden some tragedy uh, befell them. But uh, the more reading I did, it seemed that scholars actually connected both of these accounts uh, in large measure to this idea that that Pilate's trying to, you know, work on this water system, but he is, um, you know, he wants to take the temple money. Um, and in the second case then, you know, what was suggested is if you're working on this aqueduct, right, now you're sort of getting paid probably, uh, although maybe not, or at least repaying off a debt. Maybe that's better. But you're in some way benefiting financially. And yet, whose money is Pilate ultimately paying you? He's paying you God's money that was taken out of the temple. And so you shouldn't 
that's not a good way to go either, right? Uh, you should just give that money right back to God if you were, you know, a true faithful person. So yeah, I, again, I, I don't know, hopefully that's clear from what you were asking, but you know, that that's sort of what's going on in this general situation in both of these. Uh, but as to the specific nature, I don't think, I didn't read anyone that said that, oh yeah, we've got this account from, you know, this scholar that perfectly matches. Yeah, no, that, that's what I was asking and, and to, if they were connected at all or what you'd read. And that, that was helpful. And I do, I appreciate the way that you, you differentiate the two, that on the one hand, you've got Pilate doing something. He is perpetrating an evil act. And on the other hand, you have something that's we might call something like a natural disaster or a tragedy that, that just could happen to anyone regardless because you were in the, the wrong place at the wrong time. But in both cases... The response of Jesus is the same. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Repent. That's that's reading the signs of the times, recognizing what you deserve as a sinner. And then the only way out, the only settlement is the repentance and the faith that only Jesus gives. And I think that's where we, we start to get a little bit more of a hint of, of God's mercy, a little clearer picture of God's mercy in the parable. So this Luke very clearly identifies for us as a parable that Jesus tells. And it starts with a man who's got a fig tree in his vineyard. So we're talking about fig trees and vineyards, which if we're readers of the Old Testament, this should start ringing some bells. What 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 does this imagery begin to bring up in our minds, fig trees and vineyards? Well, yeah, these, these two things are often the way in which the Old Testament prophets kind of picture what God uh, has done for his people Israel, right? That he has planted them as a vineyard. Isaiah uses this uh, metaphor a lot. Um, and then the, the fig tree kind of seems to go along um, in some of my reading for this, you know, again, they were just talking about, you know, you you sort of because there wasn't always uh, real deep soil, wherever there was soil that you could plant something like a fig tree, you would do that. And so almost kind of like no space was wasted in the vineyard. If there there wasn't space for grapes, you would also build a, a fig tree. One of the one of the things I, I uh, saw reading through is that Solomon at one point, you know, pictures the life of prosperity as sitting underneath a fig tree in a vineyard, right? This is, this is the good life. Maybe, you know, we think of sitting on a beach, you know, with the, the sun rays coming down at us as sort of this picture of the good life. So, but this really is it, is that God has given his people the good life, right? This is, this is kind of the start of the parable. Uh, and if you think about it, I don't know, uh, Pastor Apple, if you use the, the chief service for Good Friday, but, uh, Maybe some of the the hearers and things know what I'm talking about, but even if not, there's this there's this portion called the reproaches uh, in this service, and it's all kind of based around this language where God basically says, "Hey." I planted you as this perfect vineyard, right? I did everything possible for you. And what did you give me back, right? Nothing or sour <laughs> grapes, right? Um, and I, I think that's the whole image here again, is this how much God has given them, uh, how much he's entrusted them with. Uh, Jesus certainly uses this against the Pharisees, but now I think against the crowds too. He says, you know, uh, you're you the people uh, here uh, of Israel, Israel, right? You should know, again, you should be able to interpret the times, what's going on, and you should know who I am because God has blessed you with his word, with the prophets, with everything, uh, and yet you don't get it. 
Okay, so we've got a, a fig tree in the vineyard. A man's looking for fruit. This is bringing up the image of God's Old Testament people. He has done everything for them, given them every good gift. A, a place in the Old Testament that, that always comes to my mind with this, and, and this focuses on the vineyard without the fig tree, but it is it is related. Is in Isaiah chapter 5. Isaiah sings a song of the of the vineyard, and he just he describes how much God has done for his people, Israel. That's kind of all in the background of this. And the owner of this vineyard and the fig tree in it, he comes looking for the fruit and he doesn't find any. And then there's this conversation that the owner has with the vine dresser. What what's the conversation? How does that apply to what Jesus is teaching? Well, I think here we see, right, uh, mercy upon mercy, grace upon grace, right? Because the story could be, uh, and and really, you know, in other places in Scripture, it is kind of shortened to this, that, you know, you get, uh, again, God uh, planting this vineyard, and it doesn't produce, and you know, it's taken away. Well, here we get this additional thing, right, where there is this examination that there's no fruit. And I think especially for the original hearers, though also as we hear it, right, this is the point where we're supposed to see this is what kind of where we are right now is that Jesus is making this judgment, right, that there is no fruit, right? Uh, And again, here, this is where I was talking about, do you put the father in one role or the son in another? I think we can kind of flip that around a little bit here. But the basic point remains that God has still extended his period of grace. He could at any point just rightly judge the people as fruitless and faithless and destroy them. But no, he says, ah, one more chance, right? One more, uh, and again, not just a, a chance, but a, <laughs> a fertilized chance, if you will, right? That he is he is uh, going to give them again every blessing necessary. And here, what's the blessing necessary? The Messiah of God. You know, this is this is in those last days. He has spoken to us by his Son. That's the the fertilizer that's being being put on at the end. Uh, hopefully, I'm not I'm mixing too many metaphors, but right, the best the best. Fer- fertilizer kept to last maybe right um and uh you know and and he says here now let's let's see but if not the the this fig tree is going to be destroyed um and maybe you know i can pause there if you have anything but i i guess the other thing maybe we should touch on is right when will it be destroyed because i think there's probably both a temporal and eternal kind of thing being referenced here too what, just briefly, what you're saying about Jesus now being the the good the good manure, yeah, so I can say that right. being saved till now. I think there there may be something to that. Just in the the time that's given here, you know, this you've had this fig tree for three years, and now we're gonna add just this little more time at the end. Thinking, I read one commentary that suggests you know think about Jesus' own ministry, and if you stretch it particularly to the beginning of John's ministry, you've got a time period of about three yeah, years, right. and and there's a, a time of a fruitless. And now, and again, this is maybe taking Jesus as the vine dresser. The son says to the father, you know, let me finish my, my mission. Let me finish the journey to Jerusalem. And again, I think that ties in nicely with the way Jesus has set this whole conversation up, you know, stick with me, follow me now to Jerusalem, see what I will do. And there's like, that's the opportunity for the fruit to come to, to see the fullness of the story, to recognize who he is, what he's done. And the fact that it's for you to, to bring you out of this judgment and that, that delay, that is a, a beautiful sign of God's mercy. 
But that delay for now does not mean that the end does not come. And, and that's what I do. I think it'd be good for us to talk about that. So if not, if the fruit doesn't come, the tree will be cut down. What what could Jesus be talking about there? Well, yeah. And here's where I think, you know, for his present hearers, I think one of the things he's talking about, and even going back to all this talk about Pilate and the Jews interacting and, and the other leaders that will come after them, is after him, I should say, is there is this idea, right, as Jesus will do later uh, in the Gospels, uh, you know, where he tells the people, right, to cling to him and then as part of clinging to him to flee the city uh, before the destruction comes upon the city. Uh, Meaning that, you know, in 70 AD, eventually we're going to have the city of Jerusalem destroyed. And and so I think there's maybe a temporal sense in which, again, Jesus is already hinting at that, that quite literally you're going to perish. You're going to die at the hands of the Romans if you just keep with the yeast of the Pharisees, this false teaching, if you think it's all about an earthly kingdom, all of this kind of stuff, you're going to end up literally perishing there. Now, again, rightly, when we hear the word perish, I think we rightly hear that we should know in the end that we're also talking about eternal punishment as well, right? Because uh, obviously, if one dies not clinging to Christ, they're going to suffer that punishment as well. But but this is, it's extreme language. But like you said, it's, it's on the basis of this extreme manifestation of who Jesus is that they're about to see. You know, if, if we can say they should have read the signs of his miracles and his teaching, I think Jesus here says now, and if you're not going to get it when I am raised up after three days from the dead, right, then forget about it, right? I mean, that's that's the greatest sign that the Messiah is on the scene, that God has made good on all of his promises. And if you're not going to get that, you can expect trouble now and you can expect trouble eternally. That's right. And so repent. That's the that's the way out. Pastor Hoppy, we've got about a minute and a half here left on the morning. Summarize this text for us in the midst of pretty heavy law language. Show us the good news that is here as well. Yeah, well, I think, you know, ultimately, I always think whenever God calls us to repent, there's a little bit of grace in that, right? Uh, you know, uh, in one place in the scriptures, I believe it's Hebrews, right? It says that, you know, God's kindness leads us to repentance. Uh, and, and what we see in that is if God is actually telling us to repent, he hasn't passed final judgment on us, right? He's calling us back to himself, back to, again, receive that great settlement that he is about to manifest manifest before the entire world as Jesus dies, rises, and ascends. And and so, you know, again, as we hear repent today, yes, it it should kind of give us that law sting that, okay, you're revealing my sin, Lord, but there's also this great grace and mercy that God has not passed judgment on me. In fact, he wants indeed to take away my sin before I get to the judge and will have to pay every penny. Instead, he wants to give me everything that is his and what a blessed gift that is. Pastor Philip Hoppe is pastor at Trinity Lutheran Church in Colby, Kansas, helping us today with Luke chapter 12, verse 54 through chapter 13, verse 9. Pastor Hoppe, thanks for being our guest today. So glad to do it. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about this part of Luke's gospel, please send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org or use the open mic feature on the app to send a message to us. We always love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.